now we're recording, right? Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to episode eight again. <laughs> again. <laughs> so we had a mishap with our recording. Uh, my dad's going to laugh at this. He jinxed us. Yeah, he did. He was like, hey, you guys need to figure out your recording. And then Katie's like, yeah, we'll do a test every time. Well, we usually do a test, but we're like, oh, we'll test while we're driving. We didn't do that, but, <laughs> but we did. We did learn our lesson. We did, we did test. I don't know. The audio just didn't work out for some reason. It was way too quiet. Like the background noise was too loud, right? Yeah, something like that. And you know, it's funny because like it sounded perfect before we started going and we're like yeah this sounds like heaven's cord <laughs> and then when we were all said and done and you were about to email it to me it was like echoey and quiet just totally unusable like there's just no fixing it it was gonzo yeah so we're zooming now yeah we're zooming it's better than nothing how are you <laughs> oh um i'm panicking oh uh yeah. I've probably had a panic attack at least three times every day in the last week. Uh, I have my booth, my very first vendor event yeah, this weekend, and I'm freaking the fuck out. I feel like I'm starting to like see it come together a little bit, Good. but like the last minute stuff, like putting price tags on things and like getting my booth kind of mapped out and like- yeah packaging and shit like I am huh, I don't know because I'm still trying to make a bunch of things and I only have two days left till I mm. no not even I have two, one and a half days to finish making things and then be ready to set up because I set up Thursday at two and I'm freaking the fuck out so I'll let you know how it goes but I yeah. so far am ready to kind of crumble into a bunch of pieces <laughs> Oh, geez. How are you? <laughs> Man, better than you. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Uh, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm, you know, same old me. I did over the weekend cut my hair and it's been something I've had to deal with. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I didn't notice like it looked shorter, but I didn't look bad. Oh boy. It's bad i'm telling you man i haven't had a professional haircut in over two years it's been maybe two and a half years and i'm saying this one is so bad i'm contemplating just going in and saying okay like you might have to just chop it (gasps) chop it maybe it's not that bad but i i don't know i I need someone to look at it. And I was begging Mitch. I'm like, will you please just take these scissors to the back of my head and make it look normal? (laughs) He was like, I don't trust myself to do that. And I'm like, but I'm trusting you. And I can't see the back of my head. So I need you. I wouldn't trust him with that either. I needed it to be done. So how did you cut it? What did you do? I just just all old fashioned, like, you know, part it down the middle all the way to the back, bring it forward. But like I brought it all forward perfectly even and like made sure like my ears were straight as my shoulders. <laughs> and, then I, I, and then I just cut it. And I don't I don't know if that's the part that's bad. I think the part that's bad is that I took the hair like right here, like on the crown of my head and did that same thing, but made it way shorter. Oh, 
because I was like, I want my hair to have like short layers because like I have, I don't know about you, but like when I get really long hair, like my hair has been, like it gets very matted. Like, oh, mine does too. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be wearing hoodies a lot. So I'm thinking if I just kind of cut my hair, then maybe I can get a handle on this. Okay. So I'm going to take my top layer and just kind of like, oh, that is short. Yeah. Hey, that doesn't look bad though. I don't know. Oh yeah. Okay. Now I see what you're talking about. (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) Yeah. I didn't see that before. (laughs) I just, I'm just going to throw it up and forget about it until, because I mean, if you think about it, I only have to do my hair like three more times this month (laughs) and I'm most likely going to curl it. And when I curl it, it hides everything. So, well, I mean, that works. We did go somewhere, uh, which we'll post a picture of, but (laughs) we have photo evidence. So I've heard this story, but it'll be new to you. You know, it's going to be a lot better because I redid my notes. (laughs) Oh, you did? Oh, that's funny. I added to mine a little bit and I, I, okay. Yeah. But I added to mine just a tiny bit to add a little bit more detail, but It'll be good. I'll tell you something. There's only one major detail that I remember of your story because I couldn't sleep. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I know. (laughs) Uh, And a certain part of my body just has been aching. Yep. So we'll get there. But honestly, it's it's all going to be kind of brand new to me because I forget very quickly. Do you ever go back and listen to our episodes once they're posted? Not when they're posted. Oh, you don't? Well, I listen so we get one more listener. Oh, well, that's that's a good way of thinking about it. <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to help our situation, so. Our numbers. Hey, we made our first dollar. Yeah. You see that? That, that ad you heard at the beginning. Uh, thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the first dollar we ever earned from this thing. Yeah, it's more than I thought we'd ever get, honestly. Right? We're already climbing that that mountain. We're already making it rain with our our bennies. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh welcome everybody to episode 8 of Haunting Cold. We are your hosts. I'm Katie. I'm April. Each episode, we travel to different haunted locations around Utah, and along the way April tells us a true crime story. Although this episode's going to be a little different because we muffed it up. Yeah, well, it wasn't our fault. It was just technical difficulties. And you know what? We could have just been like, sorry, guys, you don't get an episode this week. Sorry, too bad. But you know what we did? We said, we're going to re-record this episode (laughs) (laughs) so that our listeners don't go without. Well, and because Katie wants to hear my story again. It's a horrible story. And it's one of those stories that you're just like, how have I not heard of this? Man, like you you think you've heard all the big ones, you know? Yeah, and supposedly it really rattled the town it was in forever. Remind me where it was? Ogden. Ogden, that's right. Yeah. All right. Well, let me just tell you about it. So this is a story of the Hi-Fi Shop Murders resources, Wikipedia, Murderpedia, Salt Lake Tribune, And I actually found a podcast who did a pretty good story on it that helped me kind of fill in the blanks. It's called Military Murder, a true crime podcast. And this is episode 44 that helped me with my notes. So give her a listen. I think, I don't remember her name, but it's called Military Murder. So Mm -hmm. it's more of like a, a story 
instead of like a conversation podcast, it's more of a story podcast, if that makes okay. sense. Okay. Shout out to them. If you want to listen to that, uh, listen to this one first. <laughs> okay. So. And then compare and contrast. Yeah. Uh, hers is better, but that's fine. Okay. Let me tell you about it. On April 22nd, 1974. So this was in the seventies in Ogden, quiet town, really kind of, they, everyone kind of explained it as a sleepy town, which I don't know much about Ogden, but it's a small sleepy town. In the 70s, it was probably more sleepy than it is now. Maybe that just means like early curfews and like not much is happening at night. No nightlife. Quiet. Yeah. Quiet place. Got it. So Stanley Walker, 20 years old, and Michelle Ainsley, 19 years old, they were closing up shops. So they were working there. They were employees and they it was closing time. I guess Michelle had only been working there for like a couple weeks. So still kind of new to the ins and outs of working at an audio store. Okay. Yeah. So I guess you could compare it to like a Radio Shack or a Best Buy, but 70s version. It's called the High Five Store. Hi-Fi. H-I-F-I. Okay. Yeah. Hi-Fi. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but like in, in when this happened in Ogden, it was like a huge deal for the longest time. It was like the biggest thing that's almost ever happened there. So they're working at the hi-fi shop closing up and these two airmen, the United States Air Force airmen stationed at the Hill Air Force Base just nearby. Their names were Pierre Selby and William Anders, both 19 years old. They entered the store brandishing handguns and they took Stanley and Michelle hostage. They took the two employees down to the basement of the store, bound them, and started robbing the store. Uh, a little bit later, a 16-year-old boy, Courtney Naisbit just finished his first solo flight as a pilot trainee. I guess he was obsessed with airplanes and always wanted to be a pilot. And so he was going through training to be a pilot and he got to do his first solo flight that day, which is kind of amazing for a 16 year old. His brother, Gary was told by their mom, Carol, to go get their recent vacation photos from a local print shop. But Gary convinced Courtney to go on his way back from his flight lesson. His cousin owned the hi-fi shop. Uh, and instead of paying for parking, he was able to park at the hi-fi parking lot and go pick up the photos, which was like right next door. Yeah. Walked into the shop to thank Stanley for allowing him to park the car there. As he was walking through the back door, Stanley told him not to move or he's going to get shot. And there was a tall man standing behind Stanley, who was Pierre Selby, and told him not to move or he'd put a bullet in his head. Oh my gosh. Yeah, he dropped the photos that he just picked up for his mom and panned. He's like, oh my gosh, like what's going on? And then he was taken into the basement as another hostage. Three hostages at this point. Uh, Later that evening, so a little while later, they're all in the basement um, and it goes quiet, but then they hear the back door open. They hear the back door open and someone's walking through the store. The two men go upstairs to find Oren Walker, who's Stanley Walker's 43-year-old father. He was worried that his son hadn't returned home from work and he went to the store to look for him, make sure everything was okay. They took him hostage as well. After Orrin was taken to the basement, Selby ordered Andrews to go down to or to go out to their van and bring back something. So like they didn't understand what he was trying to get him to do, but just said, hey, go get this from the van. 
Andrews came back with a bottle in a brown paper bag. And when Selby started pouring it into like little green cup, the liquid was blue. And everyone's like, what the heck is that? Like, what are, what are you doing? What is that? And he'd said, oh, it's just vodka mixed with sleeping pills. He's like, oh, you're just going to go to sleep. It's just so you guys pass out. Um, yeah. Shortly after, Courtney's mother, Carol, arrived at the shop looking for her son. She knew it wasn't like him to be out late. And so she was like, hey, I got to go find him. She knew that he was picking up the photos and that the cousin owned the high fide shop. So she was like, he's probably there chit-chatting, but it's way too late. Like the store closed at six and it was like 8 p.m. by this time. So it was late. And they're like, okay, no, this isn't normal. You know, again, it all goes quiet. They hear the front door open with the bell ringing and Mm -hmm. the two men go upstairs and say, hey, what are you doing here? And she's like, I'm looking for my son. You know, what are you doing here? (laughs) And yeah. And Courtney said he remembered hearing his mom's voice and was like, shoot, my mom's here. They have guns. Yeah. And this is not a good situation. And now she's here too. She was also taken into the basement and taken hostage and tied up and all of that. So now there's four. Nope. My gosh. I'm sorry. My brain is not working. Four. Five. Who? Michelle, Stanley, Oren, Courtney, and Carol. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm just writing. I'm just writing that name so that I can have better commentary. So okay. I'm not like, who's that guy? What's that guy's face's name? Because it's different than his name. What's his face's name? <laughs> yeah, it's gotta be different. Once Carol was put into the basement, Selby and Andrews then propped each of the victims into sitting positions because they were all laying on the floor tied up, right? So like awkwardly laying there. Yeah. And forced them to drink the mysterious liquid. Like I said, oh. they said it was vodka laced with sleeping pills. But instead, guess what it was? Poison. Industrial drain cleaner. whose active ingredient was sodium hydroxide, which who knows what that means? (laughs) (laughs) MS. Not me. The moment it touched the hostages' lips, enormous blisters rose and it began to bring their tongues, throats, and peel away the flesh around their mouths. Oh my gosh. It just makes (laughs) makes me want chapstick. Could you imagine having no skin around your mouth right even if you recover from that like imagine recovering from that you know and if it's doing that to your lips what is it doing to your tongue so it's like literally burning and blistering their tongue their esophagus like all the way down their throats it's oh my gosh. completely frying Ugh. everything And Michelle was begging for her life this entire time, but they didn't force her to drink the drain cleaner, probably because she was hysterical anyways. And they were trying to make this a quiet, clean getaway, but they were making this very gruesome. Okay, so this wasn't working, right? And so they thought it was because they were spitting it out. So they tried to duct tape the hostage's mouth closed to hold the drain cleaner and keep them quiet. But the pus and oozing from the blisters prevented the adhesive from the the duct tape from sticking. Oh, my gosh. That is crazy how fast that's happening. And like that there's pus that fast. Like I would think that pus happens over like, I don't know, a day or two of something being infected or whatever. But imagining that it can happen that quickly because of like chemicals make everything, everything hurts. What a 
torturous experience. Oren was the last to be given the drain cleaner, but seeing what was happening to the other hostages, he allowed it to pour out of his mouth and then faked the convulsions and screams that his son and the other hostages were doing. So Selby became angry because the deaths were taking too long and they were loud and messy. So he shot Carol and Courtney, the mom and son, in the back of the head. Selby then shot Oren, but he missed. Um, Then he fatally shot Stanley, Oren's son, before again shooting at Oren, this time shooting him in the back of the head. But Oren survived this shot. He missed. So he missed the first time. And then the second time he shot him like in the back of the skull and it grazed something. And he was losing consciousness, but he was trying to do math in his head because he knew if if he let go and just like stopped thinking that he would have died. So he he was like, I'm math. I'm going to try to keep my brain active or else I'm going to die. To even remember what would have been your last thought. Right. After surviving this and being like, wow. I thought I was going to die. Yeah. I thought I was going to die. And like, that's like how I thought to survive is like, okay, keep fighting, keep thinking, like keep brain going. I feel like my first reaction would be like, oh, well, here it is. (laughs) It's the end, (laughs) you know? I would hope that I would try to survive, but I feel like I'd just be like, oh, I'm dying. Oh, no. Like, same. I totally think I'd, I'd be the same way. Just yeah. like, well, I guess this is it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and while that was happening, while he was like literally fighting for his life, Selby then took Michelle to the far corner of the basement. I'm so sorry. Trigger warning. Uh, sexual violence is about to happen. He forced her at gunpoint to remove her clothes and then repeatedly and brutally raped her as Andrews watched. When he was done, I guess it lasted 20 minutes. How horrible. Uh, When he was done, he dragged her still naked back to the other hostages, threw her on her face, and fatally shot her in the back of the head. Wow. I am so sad that those were her last moments. Right. That makes me so sad for her. Andrews and Selby noted that Oren was still alive. So Selby went on top of him, wrapped a wire around his throat and tried to strangle him. Apparently he stretched his neck so the rope would be in a different place or the cord would be in a different place so he could he could breathe just a little bit. Oh. Right? When the strangling failed, Selby inserted a ballpoint pen into Oren's ear and stomped it until it punctured his eardrum broke and exited the side of his throat apparently he did this three separate times i know doesn't it just make your ears cringe and shrink inside of your head so the two men went upstairs finished loading the equipment into their van and left the victims were discovered four hours later when Oren's wife and their other son came to the store looking for them. Oren's son heard noises coming from the basement and broke down the back door while Mrs. Walker called 911. Uh, Stan Walker and Michelle were already dead. Carol lived long enough to be loaded in an ambulance but was pronounced dead on arrival at the hospital. Courtney was not expected to live, but he did survive. He did have severe and irreparable (laughs) brain damage and required hospitalization for 266 days before being released. Despite his severe injuries, Oren Walker survived, although he, with extensive burns and stomach to his esophagus and the pen, I guess, like, so, okay, this is something I learned new today. 
from the military murderers podcast. So when they found them, Mm -hmm. you're going to hate it. (laughs) Great. So I guess when the police got there and the ambulance got there, Oren was awake and alert enough to tell them everything he could remember. And he still had the pen in his ear, but the police thought it was just like, you know, how people rest a pen on their ear. The police just thought it was a pen resting on his ear and it was literally inserted his ear and out his throat. Yikes. How is he able to talk? Wait. I don't know. But I mean, like with the chemical burns, with the ear piercing thing, I guess maybe just adrenaline. It must have been adrenaline just keeping him going. Wow. Absolute madness. Like, oh my gosh. And Byron Naisbit was Courtney's father and Carol's husband. He got a call because you know, news spread way fast in Ogden, right? And the news outlets got a hold of the story really fast. And someone that he knew, he got a call and they said, hey, did you hear what was happening at your nephew's shop? at the hi-fi shop? He's like, no, what? Then the person said, oh, there's been five people shot in the basement. And knowing where his wife and son were, he was like, holy shit. He goes and gets dressed he gets in his car and he races to the hi-fi shop and sees his wife's car in the parking lot he knew he knew but like wanted to just not acknowledge the possibility of what news he was about to get yeah exactly but then he heard the ambulance say that they just took a mother and son pair to the hospital. So he hurries and goes to the hospital and his wife was pronounced dead at the hospital, but his son was fighting for his life. Whoa. For 266 days, he fought for his life and he was on the brink of death the entire time. Uh, Selby, the Del Pierre Selby guy, he was a suspect for a murder of another airman on base just a few months before, but they had, they didn't have enough evidence to say who it was. And you know, that ever got solved. I'm, I haven't looked into it completely. I think during this investigation, they might've, I don't think they pinned him for it. So I'm not sure if it got solved. I'll look it up and maybe I'll do a story on it. Yeah. But yeah, so I guess someone stabbed a guy with a, what are those? What are those guns with the pointy ends? (laughs) A bayonet. Yeah. Someone (laughs) shot a guy, shot another airman with a bayonet in his head. Yeah. And then Pierre was also stealing cars on the side. And doing what with them? He would just, so he would go to the car dealership and he would uh, test drive a car and then he would leave or no as he was test driving the car i'm guessing this wasn't said but i'm guessing he like somehow copied the key and then he drove it back he was like oh no i'm good i'll have to think about the car you know <laughs> he would come back that night steal the car and then he would call the next day saying hey i'm actually thinking i want that car and they're like oh it was stolen he's like are you kidding me what kind of place is this like he would like <laughs> Give him hell for like hey, weirdo. Car stolen. And then <laughs> if you steal something, just walk away. Don't look back. <laughs> yeah. But he was like trying to give himself an alibi or something. I don't know. But no, those idiots just like left and right trying to crime everything. Crime everything. <laughs> <laughs> 
Hours after the news of the crime broke, an Air Force officer called the Ogden police and told them that Andrews had confided in him months earlier, quote, one of these days I'm going to rob that hi-fi shop and if anyone gets in the way, I'm going to kill them. Why? Why? Sometimes you just want to kill somebody, you know? Okay. Kidding. Here's the thing. If you hear something, say something. Right? You should have said something before this was even a real thing. If someone, you know what I mean? It's like, but I guess I was hearing on this podcast that if military people get in trouble, it's actually pretty hard to get, what's the word? Discharged. I guess it's kind of hard to get discharged from the military. It takes weeks. If someone threatens people's lives, don't you think? Hmm. Right. (laughs) And then two teenage boys, just hours after that call was received, two teenage boys were dumpster diving near Hill Air Force Base where Selby and Andrews were stationed. So I guess these boys would go dumpster diving for bottle caps because you could trade bottle caps in for money and so they would like make $20 a day sometimes and just collecting bottle caps from the dumpsters at the Hill Air Force Base. $20 a day I guess in the 70s that's a lot I would say. April do you want to tell us about your dumpster diving days? Uh, yeah, so I am a dumpster diver. Certified. I was also a juvenile dumpster diver. You are not, you are college. <laughs> <laughs> when do you stop being a juvenile? I don't know, like 18? Oh yeah, I was older than that. So at a, at a mere 19 years old, I was living in St. George, a poor college student, and I heard word on the street that you could dumpster dive for Little Caesar's Pizza and that once they closed. And I was like, all over that shit. <laughs> all over that. Free pizza. The people who worked there kind of knew that college kids did this. I'm kind of now wondering, I'm kind of wondering if it was like just me that did this. <laughs> and they're just like, this poor girl. Oh, April's back. Oh, dumpster <laughs> April's here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that poor girl. So... Anyway, the people knew that someone was going to eat this pizza still, so they they would put it in, like, the ones that were still, like, good. They would put it in its own clear plastic bag and put it on the top of the garbage pile. (laughs) And then when they walked away, that's when I then went forward (laughs) and got the pizza off the top of the garbage. We'd take it home and see what we got for treasure. It wasn't just me. Josh did it. I took you to go do that. I don't know if Jordan ever went with me, but she probably, no, she did once. I think that was the last time she ever did that with me. I do remember one time or the one time that you took me with, I remember we got like four or five bags of crazy bread. Yeah. Oh, and I remember they were so fresh and fluffy. Yeah, because they were all in that plastic bag with the heat trapped in. Yes. And it's like, it was like their last batch, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like they almost made it for us. They did. I remember thinking it was like the best batch I've ever had. And I'm like, it came from their trash. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes at the time they would have this, um, 
jalapeno cheesy bread and it was literally my most favorite thing and one time they threw it away and I was able to get it <laughs> so excited it reminds me of like the rats of ratatouille <laughs> <laughs> right that's me but I'm not cooking nothing I'm just still on people's oh. food yeah um but yeah well then that's not the only thing I dumpster dived for technically <laughs> so uh, in St. George, me and Jordan, when our friendship bloomed into the miraculous thing that it is now. Girl Jordan. Girl Jordan. Yeah, our Joe. Yeah. Corey's girlfriend. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Confused. <laughs> when our friendship became, we were going to move in together into a townhome and she was coming down to like do paperwork, look at the townhome and all that stuff. And I was in this trashy old apartment in Washington, Utah, on the border of St. George. And our new apartment was going to be just really close to the school. And so I was like, sweet, cool. I'm going to be around other people. Yeah. (laughs) We were driving along the um, student housing apartments. And what do you know, up against a dumpster is a brand new effing mattress. (laughs) (laughs) but it was like clean as you can possibly imagine if it wasn't new we were like um it's propped up against the dumpster and I was like hey Jordan do you need a mattress and she's like hey as a matter of fact I do (laughs) and so I was like oh cool so we just took it we took it here's my question is um how long did you wait before spotting the item and then taking the item it was probably within two minutes (laughs) (laughs) that we saw it and (laughs) took it. (laughs) Do you regret not waiting longer? Honestly, it was probably someone's new mattress. Like they were going up their stairs to their apartment to get the old yucky mattress to put in the dumpster. They propped up their new mattress against the dumpster so that they could just quickly get it because that's how brand new it looked. I was like, this has to be like recently bought. So it was a win for you, loss for them. Yeah. Probably. Honestly, like, don't prop up your mattress against the dumpster if you're not ready to dumpster it, you know? But would you say that maybe you should have given them, like, an extra three more minutes? <laughs> no. Is there, like, a five-second rule, like, a five-minute rule Mm-mm. for lost and found items? I think by the time that we, like, saw it, took it, <laughs> and drove away, <laughs> it was probably a solid five minutes Okay. when we saw it with our eyeballs and then drove away with it. Because we had to load it in Josh's stealth, which is not a truck. It is not even no. a full-size car. <laughs> Two-door sedan and the doors went vertical. Yeah. Yeah, he tried to put Lamborghini doors on them. It doesn't work. We no longer can open the doors. Well, okay. And I would say that you waited a fair amount of time. Because, yeah, like if you're going to put your brand new mattress out there, exposed. You better be quick. Or you better have someone watching it, like babysitting it. Right. I mean, there's they're the dumb ones, not me. Yeah. The dumpster has given me a many treasures, let's just say. But let's talk about their (laughs) treasures that they found. Okay. Okay. The teenage boys that were dumpster diving for the bottle caps, they found the victim's wallets and purses and recognized pictures on the driver's licenses. They called the police, reported it, and a crowd of airmen quickly formed, including Selby and Andrews, because it was the dumpster near their barracks. Okay. The detective who responded to the scene, believing that the killers might be in the crowd, they put on a show and speaking super dramatically and waving every piece that they found from the dumpster, like every wallet and every purse that they picked up from the dumpster, they're like waving it 
around. Uh, this police officer later noted in his report that out of all the airmen gathered around the dumpster, most of whom stood still and watched in relative silence, two in particular paced around the crowd, spoke loudly, and made frantic gestures. And they were like just being weird and acting funny, right? And they're like, it's like there's something off with these guys. Yeah. One of these things is not like the other. What's that? It sounds familiar. Oh, I think it's from Sesame Street. Oh, <laughs> well, I don't watch that. Oh. Hmm. Um, let's see. What words am I reading? Um, okay. The detective later identified the two airmen as Selby and Andrews. So he was like, when he did a lineup of the airmen, once they were identified as suspects, he's like, yeah, those were the guys that were acting weird at the thing. And he later received an award from the Utah branch of Justice Department for his use of proactive techniques. So he was thinking nice. ahead. You know, like my last, not my last story, what was the one with the badass, like, woman detective with, oh, oh the Lori hacking one? Yeah. God, they make me want to be in law enforcement, but then I remember I can't handle things. Yeah, sometimes. I mean, these this one's a good one, but <laughs> uh, let's see. So based on Selby's and Andrew's reactions to the evidence being removed from the trash and the officer's implication of Andrew's, they were both taken into custody and a search warrant was issued. Police found in their barracks flyers for the hi-fi shop and a rental contract for the public storage unit where they were keeping their goods that they stole. So they didn't sound like they were even trying to hide it, though. Like, they like yeah. they didn't have any plan of, like, oh, oh shoot, we got to get rid of all the evidence, you know? Like, there was right. no, no cleanup. So, like, did they want to get caught? I honestly think that they didn't think that they would get caught. Oh, it's one of those things. Yeah, they were too uh, prideful. They're like, nah, it's over for us, you know? So police obtained a warrant for the storage unit where they discovered several pieces of the stereo equipment, which were later identified from the serial numbers as having been taken from the hi-fi store. During the course of removing the equipment from the storage unit, detectives also discovered the half-empty bottle of the industrial drain cleaner that had been used on the hostages. Oh, so sad. Based on all of this evidence, Selby and Andrews were formally charged with the crimes. A third person, though, uh, Keith Roberts, was also charged because he was their lookout slash getaway driver and stayed in the van while they did all the horrible things in the shop. So, yeah. So, Selby, Andrews, and Roberts were tried jointly for first-degree murder and robbery. Selby and Andrews were convicted of all charges and sentenced to death. Roberts, the lookout guy, was convicted only of robbery and was sentenced to prison, who later died by suicide. Wow. So, he didn't uh, serve his full sentence, which I think was like five, 15 years to life. Dang. During the trial, it was revealed that Selby and Andrews had robbed the store with the intention of killing anyone that got in their way and had been looking for a way to commit the murders quietly and cleanly. So this is how they got the idea of the drain cleaner. Right. The two men saw a film called Magnum Force, and in the movie, a sex worker was forced to drink Drano, and it was shown immediate and she was shown immediately dropping dead after drinking it. Because everything you see in Hollywood is real and true, they thought this was the best way to do it. So they were like, oh, great idea. That was quiet. That was clean. And right. whatever. But it, I thought it was interesting that they also brought guns. 
But I guess yeah. maybe that's to show force of like a robbery. Right. So you're going to walk in there with your chemicals and be like, hey. <laughs> I got chemicals for you to drink. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Oren Walker and Courtney Nesbitt were the star witnesses for prosecution. But due to his amnesia, Courtney was unable to testify. So his father, Byron Hunter Nesbitt, did testify on his behalf. After the death sentences, the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, it's a civil rights organization in the United States, and they tried to get their sentences reduced to life without parole instead of the death penalty, claiming that they had been unfairly convicted despite all the evidence because they were both Black and the victims and jury were all white no no way no i'm sorry but if you force five people to drink drain cleaner uh shoot all of them uh rape one and then steal all the stereo equipment and then no remorse at all i'm sorry it doesn't matter only that but it was premeditated being like i mean of course it was like yeah months before saying oh yeah i'm gonna do this yeah I think that we can leave race out of this one. Like it was just a evil person. Yeah. Before, before you had even mentioned anything about race, I didn't know that they were of color. Right. But don't get us wrong. Like, I mean, people are unfairly treated and sentenced uh, due to the yeah. color of their skin. My personal opinion is that this is not one of those cases. I agree. Like, that is a problem, but that's not the problem in this case. Yeah, in this case, it was just two evil men that brutally murdered a group of people. Yeah. Yeah. Andrews was quick to blame the judicial system of racism. He claimed he never meant to kill anyone, but it was later rebutted when detectives cited a statement by Andrews when he admitted being the one to purchase a drain cleaner and bring it to the store. So he knew what he was doing with that drain cleaner. (laughs) Like... He wasn't like, oh, hey, let's go to the hi-fi store and bring our drain cleaner with us. Like, can't forget that. No, he knew what he was doing with that. Um, Selby and Andrews were notoriously hated prisoners when they were in the prison system. They were quite hated on death row, especially by Gary Gilmore. Gary Gilmore is another person for another story. So were they why were they hated so much? Is it just because of because they were evil people like they were just like they had no remorse for any of it right i've just heard that usually it's like the people that do crimes against children are hated the most but it seems like this crime it's more like what 16 and older so it's just interesting to me that they were hated so much is it just because of their personality or well i mean their prob their personality probably sucked but I wonder if it's because the manner of which they went about like killing people, it was torture. Like it wasn't just like shooting someone and they die quickly. It was like they tortured them. So I don't know. I I didn't read anything about why they were hated. But one thing to note, though, is that Gary Gilmore, his last words when he was put to death was, I'll see you in hell, Pierre and Andrews. (laughs) So (laughs) if that was his last words, like he hated them. Yeah. So Pierre Selby was put to death by lethal injection, August 28th, 1987. 
Andrews was put to death by lethal injection five years later in 1992. The hi-fi murders are still seen as amongst the worst crimes ever committed in the state of Utah. The case is now taught to the FBI trainees at the FBI Academy at Quantico, Virginia, and it was included as a sample case in the FBI's crime classification manual. The incident was also a basis for a 1991 CBS television movie called Aftermath, A Test of Love. Courtney Naisbitt's story became a base for the book called Victim, The Other Side of Murder by Gary Kinder. So that book goes into a lot of detail. So if you want to, because Gary Kinder approached Byron and said, Hey, I want to write this book. He's not, I've never written a book before, but I want to tell this story from the side of the victim. Byron was like, well, I don't really want to talk about this really, but if it's going to help somebody like I'll do it. So they worked together and wrote this book and it goes into a lot of detail, a lot of information, a lot of, you know, heartstring tugging stories about how Courtney's life with chronic pain after the the incident happened and, and what he went through. Right. Courtney actually died um, at the age of 44. And I think it was just due to an unknown illness. So it wasn't anything technically linked to his ailments from the incident. In an interview with Gary Kinder, the author of the book, he said, quote, doctors from the moment he arrived in the ER until he got out of the ICU seven months later thought he was going to die at any time. In ICU, you either get better in a few days or you die. He stayed right on the edge. Yeah. Yeah. So he said Courtney's survival was a testimony to the support he received from his family, his church, and his community, but especially his dad, Byron. Quote, it was as if Byron willed him to live. He had someone there holding Courtney's hand 24 hours a day, brothers, sisters, and members of the church. So um, Courtney later got an education in computers and held a job at the Hill Air Force Base which is interesting because the people who hurt him were from there. It's also ironic because computers, because his injuries happened in like a audio electronic electronic store. Um, But he had had trouble like holding on to employment. And so he did end up having to get on social security assistance for a lot of his life. Um, Over the years, Gary Kinder stayed close to the family He also said he heard from criminal defense attorneys who read his book, um, and they rethink their beliefs about the justice system and capital punishment. For several months, Courtney was unaware that his mother had died or even that she had been injured, having blocked the entire event from his memory. His own part in the book included this conversation with his dad. Um, On one of the trips out of the hospital, Courtney asked, where's mom? How come she never comes to see me? Byron said, Courtney, your mother was in the same accident as you, and she is not as well off as you are. He said, well, if she can't come see me, can I go see her? And he said, or Byron said, you really don't remember, do you, son? Courtney shook his head, looking at his father. And then he said, and Byron said, your mother's dead, Courtney. And for a moment, Courtney just stared at his father. Oh, no, he said, finally. No, she isn't. She really is, said his father. And we have to face that. And the fact that she's gone mm-hmm. as tears fall down my face. Um, Oren Walker died on February 13th, 2000. I couldn't find much information on the life he lived after the everything that happened, but I think it'll probably tell me in this uh, book. So yeah, so 
I'm sure this book would also tell me a little more about um, Oren Walker, but I know that he was the star witness in the, in the trials and everything, but how he lived his life after that, I'm not totally sure. Gotcha. And that is the story of the hi-fi shop murders. Wow. And that happened in 1976? 74. 74. Dang. So far, is that the oldest story you've told? Because you've done one that was in the 80s. No, I think one was Anthony Adams. That was in the 80s. Um, oh, his was 1978. So 74 is the oldest. Yeah, this is the oldest story I've done so far. I do plan on going back in time a little bit more, but I so far have been horrible at research um <laughs> no I think you've been doing a great job I procrastinate till the very last second but honestly though like okay so the first day that we recorded you said that you did all of your notes like that morning yeah like I need like time for it to marinate <laughs> and like <laughs> settle <laughs> and well, then roast like the cabin murders, the Tita family cabin murders, that one I spent yeah. a lot of time on because I watched a movie. I listened to another podcast. I did a little bit more and I let it sink in a little more. So I felt like I told that story better than I normally do. And so if I allow myself more time and like actually like try, then, <laughs> then, <laughs> then I feel like the stories turn out better. But like, I'm not going to lie. Time is not a luxury I have. Uh, not right now. Yeah, not right now. So hopefully come the new year, I have a little bit more time to tell better stories. <laughs> so. <laughs> no, I think you're doing a great job. Like that was a really, you did a really good job. So Katie, where did we uh, travel to the other day? Imagine we're in Orem, Utah with, I don't know, how would you describe Orem, Utah? How would you, how would you describe? Okay, April, take us there. What did it look like when we were in the parking lot of the Sarah Theater in Orem, Utah. Um, we were at the behind of the Sarah building. It was nice and beige and I guess not beige. It was just it was just white and blue. Like bucket white. Yeah, like a bucket <laughs> white. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> bucket white and like a really flat blue, like navy blue. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a very flat color all yeah. around. No offense. <laughs> <laughs> no offense. <laughs> all right, everybody. So we went to the Sarah Theater in Orem, Utah. And the Sarah Theater is, well, okay. So Sarah is an acronym and it's S-C-E-R-A. And that stands for, <laughs> which I was not prepared for this last time. You made it up the entire time. <laughs> and you know what? I double checked. And last time you said I only had two out of the five, right? I had three out of the five, right? Oh, well, anyway, I just had to give myself credit now. <laughs> okay. Well, it doesn't count. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So S stands for Sharon. C is for community. E is for education. R is for recreation and A is for association. Sarah is a nonprofit organization and they basically focus on just providing wholesome community activities for people 
you know, to come together and learn about the art or to be involved in the arts or to just um, watch the art, (laughs) (laughs) be entertained by the art. Um, This started back in 1933 and actually it was started by um, some local LDS leaders and they held some meetings because, you know, this was right before the beginning of World War II. Spirits were low. They're like, we really need something around here that's going to boost morale. Mm -hmm you know for families to do that wholesome and we need to get these kids into some kind of programs so they founded Sarah with Sarah they were like okay so we want to have all these programs but what are we gonna do like how are we gonna do it they decided to build a theater they built the Sarah theater and actually next door they built the there's like an outdoor swimming pool and how they built that back in the day is a bunch of community members just donated a bunch of materials and made a a swimming pool. Hmm. Pretty cool that people got together and they're like, yeah, we really need this. And they made it happen. Yeah, that's pretty cool. But also, does it meet the zoning standards for the materials you can use for a pool? I'm sure they renovated it then. (laughs) I think the standards now are a little bit higher. Yeah, probably. They actually use chlorine now. Yeah. So for the theater, the land was donated by the LDS Church. And within a few years, the theater was constructed. It had three theaters. Uh, We have the Clark Grand Theater, the Show House 2, and those ones are indoors, and then the Shell, which is outdoors. Hmm. Um, There is a room called the Gallery 101, where art is showcased for the public to see. And it's a carpeted room of about 1,700 square feet. On the second floor of the building, it used to be the Orem Heritage Museum. But one day, the Sarah organization, they received an anonymous donation, which gave them enough money to purchase an old seminary building next door. And in 2012, they relocated the museum to the old seminary building. So I don't know what the second floor is being used for right now, but I'm assuming they're just using it for like storage or something oh yeah i don't i don't know i will say though that the theaters the lobby and the concessions area have been renovated since it was first opened it's not all exactly the same but on the property there's also a courtyard with bronze statues and it's a depiction of a father a mother and a child there's also a 20 foot uh functioning sundial and there's also a giant chessboard with movable pieces so even when you're outdoors there's some really cool things for you to see yeah that's cool the theater's grand opening was on september 1st of 1941 and their first feature film was john wayne's shepherd of the hills and i did a little deep dive of that movie so that movie came out on july 18th of 1941 just what like two months before about two and a half months before the grand opening of the theater so i'm sure at the time people were like you know, it's the hot buzz of the town is this new movie coming out. Yeah. This movie was John Wayne's first feature film that had Technicolor. It was oh. his fifth film he ever starred in. And the movie was filmed at Big Bear Lake in California. Oh, that's cool. And did you know that John Wayne started his career as a stuntman? No. Yeah. And so he was just an extra or a stuntman for a bunch of like movies. <laughs> and then one day, Raoul Walsh, he suggested that Wayne start in a movie. He was like, hey, here's some auditions. And then before you knew it, he was a star in three different movies. Then he was in some low budget films. Then he got some more recognition in 1939. And then he was a big star in a lot of different Western movies. 
I'm surprised we didn't know more about him think knowing how much our great grandma was obsessed with him. Oh my gosh. I know. Right. Like I was like looking into his uh, filmography and I'm like, I have never watched <laughs> any of his movies. <laughs> well, I feel like I, I should know a lot about him because grandma was freaking obsessed with him. Yeah. Our grandma, our great grandma. So our grandma's mom had a life-sized cardboard cutout of John Wayne in her living room that was there the whole time I have memories for the last yeah. 27 years. And it would scare the shiz out of me sometimes. Yeah, she would have movie memorabilia. Oh my gosh, she was in love with that man. Yeah, Oh. R.I.P. Yeah. Okay. So that was their first feature film. And that kind of sets the stage of like the time period that we're in for when the legend begins. The theater has a legend. As far as we know, there is only one ghost that supposedly haunts the theater. Supposedly, a woman named Eleanor worked at the theater back in the day. And she worked a Wednesday shift. Well, one one day on her way to work, she was in an auto accident and she died. Well, they say that Eleanor doesn't know that she has died and she still goes to the theater to work her shift. Mm. Apparently, that's when she's seen most is on Wednesdays. That's cool. I do want to reiterate that this is a legend. Uh, we don't know that this, we don't know what her name is because I have read that people have just given her this name. And because I don't know what her actual name is, I wasn't able to look into any birth records, death records, yeah. things like that. So I wasn't able to confirm it. Um, I'm really just going off of what people have told me. So it's not proven that somebody died on their way to work. It's not proven that, you know, somebody's haunting this place. It's all just legends. So is there specific, like, have people seen her or seen an apparition or anything? Yeah. So people have seen her mostly in the basement. They say that they see her and she normally has like this bluish green glow to her. Huh. And she's normally described as like a middle-aged woman. She's also hurt. So I, I that's the description that I've gotten. And that's all that I know as far as her looks. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, when you envision a ghost, like a apparition of a middle-aged woman, in my head, I think of like a Victorian dress or something or like, or like just like a nightgown. You know who I think of? No. Granny from Looney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> you do i'm not middle-aged but yeah <laughs> like a nightgown yeah yeah like a. <laughs> but it's funny because it's like 50 years down the road are there going to be ghosts of like people in high top pants or like the high waist pants and crop tops and, and like flannels and all that stuff and jeans so. yeah or do we all just get redressed in like a flowy gown or nightgown or something it's like a wardrobe department in the ghost <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh anyway let me get to my notes here <laughs> most people have seen her in the basement and in the wardrobe department i don't know exactly where that is in the building but if you've worked there or volunteered there or whatever in the wardrobe department they say that that's where she's usually seen and or heard there also have been a lot of sightings on the stage and up on the catwalk people have heard a lot of like walking around up there when nobody's been there Ooh. and uh after we recorded saturday morning and i talked to josh which i should have talked to him before we recorded but here we are recording a second time <laughs> and i got an opportunity to say something 
<laughs> he said uh that he's had kind of an experience at the sarah theater he was like what? yeah yeah he was like yeah me and my buddies went there and saw spider-man 3 one time <laughs> and he said that they were the only ones in the theater you know it's pitch black they're watching the movie he's like we all kept seeing something or someone going up and down the aisles like like on the sides of them and then up at the front like kept seeing somebody walking and they're like we were the only ones in there whoa weird yeah and they're like it, it didn't seem like he was one of the workers usually they have like you know like a flashlight or like they make themselves known yeah but like whenever they saw something it was kind of like on the corner of their eye or it's just like brief. huh yeah i don't know ghosts watching spider-man 3 <laughs> Honestly, though, if you think about it, if you're a ghost, that is the place to haunt. It's in yeah. like a movie theater because then you get just free access to all the new shit. You're always going to be entertained. Yeah. I mean, always. I mean, if you're going to live in eternity on hell, you might as well be entertained yeah. with uh, movies unless you see the same ones over and over again. That would suck. Well, it'd only be for like, what, six weeks at a time. That's true. Then you got move on to the next one. So you get really good at like quoting the movie and then you move on. <laughs> like you could just literally act out every part of the movie. <laughs> yep, exactly. Yeah, and I want to haunt a movie theater. That'd be fun. Seriously. Um, most people though, like, you know, because I'm part of the Utah Haunted History page, most people who have commented about the theater being haunted didn't have a lot of stories to share. But did agree that the theater just has this over has a very obvious feeling of something. There's like a there's a vibe of some sort. Definitely, yeah. And, and somebody commented, they're like, "I swear, I swear, any any theater is haunted. <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter. Doesn't matter. Like any historical theater has to be haunted. Doesn't matter if anything did happen there. It's just haunted. Every single one. That can't be that far off because if you think about it, I mean, if there's a lot of music in that building, that has different vibrations mm-hmm. right which can bring in different energies and then yeah so on and so forth whatever you believe i don't know i feel like it could definitely draw in some things just from the high energy there yeah yeah i could see that a lot of people that commented agree that this place is probably haunted mm-hmm. here's the thing is i chatted with the ceo's wife online and her name is Krista Robertson and she laughed at a lot of the claims that were being made about the place being haunted and she wasn't afraid to voice her opinions about it. She thinks that a lot of people are making up their stories and that it's really just something that is spread around during Halloween time to like bring a believer, huh? Definitely not a believer. And it seems like the CEO himself is not a believer either. So this place doesn't have owners. It's just ran by a board of people. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like the CEO is the guy like in charge. And it sounds like he doesn't, um, he's not open to talk about this kind of stuff. Gotcha. Because I also chatted with a local researcher named Danny Stewart, you know, just about what he knows. And he kind of told me the same thing. He, well, he kind of just reiterated what I had already found out and just said, you know, like the CEO isn't willing to discuss those things and isn't, doesn't allow people to investigate either. So it sounds like their doors are locked when it comes to that kind of stuff. So Mm -hmm. I would say definitely don't trespass. Don't, you know, get in there without permission. Um, It is just a place that you just 
are going to walk by and wonder until they yeah. are willing to open that up. But until then, it's just a legend. Yeah. I do hope that one day they decide to open it up to the public because in my head, I think that that would be smart business move. <laughs> right. I do want to leave everybody with a short story about the legend, though. Whether or not it might be true, I'll leave that up to you guys. But here's a story that I stumbled across on YouTube. I'm not going to give you the details of the whole story. I'm just going to go over it briefly. But I do encourage you to go over to that channel and watch that video because it's great. And I want to make sure they get credit for that video too. Yeah. So the channel's name is The Paranormal Polynesian. And in his video, he does a performance at the theater. And then afterwards, he says, my friend, you know, had heard the rumors of the theater being haunted. And we decided we're going to stay after a little bit longer and do an investigation. So they stayed after all the lights are shut off and everything. And he has this app on his phone where he asks the question and then words will pop up. He asked a question. I'm not sure what he had asked. Words had come up and a few of them, I didn't write all of them down, but a few of them were words like hot, itching, Deborah and his friend was like well what are those words because that has nothing to do with what you just asked or anything to do with what's happening right now and he was like well you know like sometimes it matters right now but sometimes we might find out later that it mattered yeah I'm just gonna take a screenshot and we'll, we'll see so not much else happens he took his friend home and then he went to his own house and when he got there he started eating something and then he was like you know I started an itch and getting like these hives and he kept like thinking about the theater and he was like you know the the whole time I was there, I just felt like there was a woman there. I mean, we didn't really get any evidence of that, but I just felt like there was a woman there. Mm-hmm. So then he got his urge to start asking questions again. So he sits on his couch and he pulls out his phone, get that app out, and he starts asking questions again. And he says, okay, is there anything I need to know? Is there anything that you want to tell me? It just kept saying fire, fire, fire. And then all of a sudden the room started filling with smoke. <gasps> So he gets up, he locates the fire and he realizes it's an electrical fire, puts it out. And then he calls an emergency line, you know, to get the whole situation figured out. And the woman he spoke to on the phone, her name was Deborah. Shut the front door. Then he went back and he's like, oh my gosh, his uh, screenshot, all the words on there related somehow to that warning that he had got about the fire. His whole point of the video was, did the ghost of the Sarah Theater save my life? (laughs) Yeah, that is nuts they can tell the future apparently yeah must be that's crazy though so the theater is still the same today as it has always been as far as what they do there so like i was saying they do theater classes dance classes music classes really anything that has to do with art they do there right now they are doing a christmas story is their theater production yeah it's a christmas story musical i would definitely check that out they're doing that until december 18th so only for a few more days and then after that they're doing caleb chapman's crescent Christmas and also Christmas with Aubrey Oliverson and friends. So check out their show times and ticket prices and support them at sarah.org. Awesome. Thanks everybody for listening to episode eight of Haunt and Cold. Check us out on Instagram at Haunt and Cold Podcast. You can also submit your own personal paranormal or true crime stories to stories at hauntandcold.com. You can also find us on Patreon if you just search us. Just search Haunt and Cold. We have a website, (laughs) hauntandcold.com. It's rough. (laughs) Listen, I don't have many jobs when it comes to this thing. I'm (laughs) required to have a story (laughs) every couple weeks. (laughs) And another task I was given was to work on the website. I haven't. (laughs) 
<laughs> so we'll all know when April does her job. You'll see a difference someday. <laughs> It'll be a surprise to us all, though. Exactly. Oh, have a bring your own booze episode airing next week. Yes. And that's with Jordan Harrington, Tori Harrington. Tori's our first Bring Your Own Booze guest. Her husband is going to tell us a little bit of his background with paranormal stuff, as well as his side of all the stuff that happened with Tori. Yeah, and it, it's a really good episode. So definitely you'll want to check that one out. I hope everybody has an awesome Christmas because we won't talk to you guys until after Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next episode comes out December 26th. So, yeah, I hope everybody has a good one. Yeah. And, yeah. Anything else? Nope. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. (laughs) Why do you always do mmm so long? Okay, let's try it again. Mm Mmm. Okay, bye. bye. We'll see. (laughs) I guess we'll see. (laughs)